Deluxe Madness. We're doing it again in the closet. And this time, Nathan didn't have to learn about world history. So it's been a good week, guys. It's been a good, good week. It's been a great, great time. In the in the scheme of our reading. In the scheme of our reading. Uh, that in the be- scheme of hockey. Well, and more but importantly, so this was something rewards. that was interesting. Yeah. The a couple times ago, as you all heard, um, we we had exiled folks from uh, from northern Canada and told them to GTFO. Uh, Winnipeg, you're back in the fold. Welcome back. You can you can <laughs> hang out again. Uh, we never dunked on Dallas. Uh, no, so somehow we missed that. Somehow completely. we missed that entire series for Dallas. So uh, Dallas, you get a pass this time. But I'm watching you. Um, and currently, everybody in the Southern California zone, uh, uh, well, give... middle middle California, the Silicon Valley land. Everybody in the San Jose adjacent regions, San Fran Jose, you're on notice. You are not our friends right now. No, com- you are not comrades. Normally, 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 we only like we we only dislike the Silicon Valley douchebags that are creating all the homelessness. But right now. There's hockey dislike. There's also hockey. Also, if anyone is in, if any, if there are any true comrades in that zone, living in the belly of the beast, I'm not saying I will pay you a large sum of money if you, uh, Nancy Kerrigan, Logan Couture, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm heavily intimating that I will do that. If you do that to Logan Couture, we, just, we know just we know please. your action-based people. We've seen yes. you actually infuse food onto non-food producing trees because you guys are incredible comrades. Anarchists, we, this we is your time not, to rise up. We would not mind uh, a blade to the Achilles. That's just something, just a, something just, just non-lethal, a, just something that he'll come back from. But just, maybe give him a bad case of the shits for a couple days. Just just something to stop right. him from murdering us. Pre-game epicat. And, and the episode that we have to be tight on because it has to get launched tomorrow, we're 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 producing the most cuttable content yes, we've ever in the made. History of mankind. Welcome. So we, we're hockey people. Too, we are so hockey yes. people. Go Blues! Come on, we can do it, boys. All right. So um, more important things. Well, um, more important things. First and foremost, it is corrections time because at the high oh. at, at the beginning of uh, of uh, the episode, if there are corrections to be made, there are corrections to be made. Uh, David, what corrections do we have to make this week? David probably should remember it. David should. It's David pronouncing that R place over over in the that we were we were pronouncing with a soft J instead of a French oh, J. Oh, Rajava. Yeah, and I was pronouncing yeah. it Rahava like it was Spanish. Yeah, and it, it is it yes. is not in fact that it is it is it is an imperialist Balkan puppet state that is pronounced in a French fashion, not an imperialist Balkan puppet state uh, that is pronounced in a Spanish fashion. And it's Rojava. We, not Rava. And thank you, Rain, on Twitter for pointing that out and correcting us there. Yes. Uh, Nathan's correction of the week. Um, I've been a little too mean to anarchists in a snarky way. Uh, I I am working my way through uh, learning a lot of things. And so I think in the heated passion of the commune, I, uh, I I put a lot on modern anarchist, anarchists that they probably have no connection to, and and would and that's probably just as reductionist as as any anarchist saying that you know every atrocity of Marxism-Leninism is is our fault. I, I, it obviously isn't fording the discourse at all, um, and so I, I'd like to walk that back a little bit. I'm I'm learning. 
I'm I'm working to try and find the common ground there a little bit better and see if we can uh, see see if we can figure out why it is that we disagree about what we disagree with. But but anarchists, if you're listening and you're still listening after the the horrible awful things I've kind of railed on you for, uh, I'm getting there. I'm sorry, but I I hear you and I'm 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 working to get better. Yep, and and I, I will say that that's you know just like we don't want any atrocity and and failing on Marxist Leninism on us because there there really aren't that many atrocities in spite of the fact of what Western uh, publishing will tell you. Uh, oh, we're not gonna, we're not we're not gonna pretend that uh, the purges were just like a. a uh, you know, skipping through the daisies, perfect thing. Probably necessary to defeat the Nazis, but doesn't doesn't I mean, mean and, it's and, super and, great. And to say the purges, and again, this is wildly off topic, but again, I think it's important to set the discourse of where we're at. Again, there's a difference between saying the purges were necessary and saying that every single person that got purged or ended up in a gulag was absolutely 100% a counter-revolutionary, and right. there was no chance that we absolutely threw in well-meaning anarchists or dissidents who had very real critiques, and like... That level of black and white, we have to get away from to a yeah. certain extent, I think. So, again, acknowledging but, that... But unfortunately, there's this idea that, like, the purges were 1984 come to life. Well, and, and that's... And, and, and we got to battle that, and it, it, it makes... It, it kind of lets opportunists and yes. lets counter-anti-communists and counter-revolutionaries shake us between each other. And, and that's where it's... That and that's why, if there's a place to have those conversations... It's here. It's mm-hmm. in the cave. It's in the closet. It's on the podcast. It's not on Twitter or in public fi- because that discourse is facing the general public and it's giving reactionaries. It, it keeps feeding that narrative in a way it doesn't need to. If yeah. we want to have those nuanced conversations, these are these are the forums we need to do it amongst ourselves, amongst comrades to figure that out. But right. forwardly. That 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 is a big reason why with the people you read with, with the people you organize yes, with, things especially like that. and critically with the people you organize with. That's mm-hmm. you you can't just sit in the cave. There has to be some form of organizing. So mm-hmm. and it has to be done in good faith, and it has to mm-hmm. be done in good faith with eyes on defending um, the existing socialism and eyes on maybe trying to understand uh, the material conditions that drew said actions about. And, you know, I mean, looking at critiquing a way that how can we approve on this? Not how can we say they were terrible? Exactly. Again, everyone, everyone's going to come down their path a little bit differently. Uh, Don't, I think assuming that everyone is working in bad faith is just a a big way for us to keep fighting amongst ourselves. Right. And it does suck because there's definitely, there's, there are definitely definitely people working in bad faith. They're working in bad faith. But if there's one thing I've learned on Twitter, the last two weeks is that some of them aren't and if you just assume they don't for a little bit sometimes you can reach people and that's fun and that makes this worthwhile yeah. um but that being said hey it's 10 minutes in we should probably start talking about this thing yeah we're gonna start talking about this wonderful wonderful work imperialism the highest stage of capitalism this, hold on hold on Lenin. this wonderful wonderful work imperialism well no, okay <laughs> The book. Okay. The, the, I, not the thing. Not, not the, the thing. thing. Not, okay, not, not the thing. Not the thing. The thing is very bad. Very bad. Very bad. Um, you know, we stand in solidarity with Venezuela right now. Yes. The, the oh imperialism, the thing God. is very bad. So. And, uh. And let's not detract from what the hell is going on with the U.S. aggressing at Iran right now. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one, isn't it? And, uh, We're having a normal one. And the continuous attacks on Haiti. Yep. Um, as the help that even Venezuela especially has given them is being robbed away by a U.S. puppet government. Um, so, yeah, I mean, imperialism itself is very, very bad. But we're, we're reading the book about wh- what that means and how that goes about, and it'll, it'll help us understand things like the IMF, the World Bank, things like that. that- 
All right, so on the book, we're going to start, and our, our copy has a little intro. It's not the uh, it's not the formal preference, but it's a it's a nice little intro. It's, and this is from what we're, we're, just for if people wanted to at home, this is a PDF of from the Essential Works of Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can download this. We will link it in the uh, description for this episode and all the future episodes. Yep. Uh, so it says, Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. Lenin wrote Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism in early 1916 while in exile in Switzerland. So Nathan was right. He was in Switzerland, not in Germany. I dunk straight on my face. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Although the manuscript, manuscript was at the printer by October 1916, the book itself did not appear in St. Petersburg until September of 17, so right before that, the October wow, Revolution. Wow, like right? So it was interesting because yeah. we said this was written well before State and Rev, and I feel like... It was published right before right State and Rev. Right, I feel like... It was like, publish this, October Revolution, published yeah, it, Rev. Yeah, it was like a double record. About, yeah. Like, yeah. Back to back. Yep. Uh, apparently as a result of the general confusion and disorganization in Russia in the period. Gee, I wonder <laughs> where that disorganization came from. Almost like a revolution was happening. Uh, the book was written for open legal publication in Russia. Lenin had czarist censorship in mind and devised means to circumvent it, employing what he characterized as Aesopian language. And, of course, Aesopian leaned to Aesop's fables. and yeah. Basically... Um, I can't. He used non-Russian. He used Aesop was trying to critique the Greeks by using things that were not Greek, things that were yeah, animals neutral. and kind of similar to how Grimm's fairy tale. You know, you yeah. take everything out, but it's obviously a, a looking at something else. He was using completely non-Russian examples with an obvious wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is happening in Russia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he used non-Russian examples to illustrate points about Russia. Lenin commented later, It is painful in these days of liberty to read these squeezed-in passages of a pamphlet, crushed as they seem in an iron vice, distorted on account of the censor. He went on to explain the careful reader will easily substitute Russia for Japan and Finland and Poland, Courland, the Ukraine, Kiva, Bukhara, Estonia, and other regions peopled by non-great Russians for Korea. Uh, uh... I didn't. I don't know. Like, like three of those places. That's that's <laughs> like three of those. Like, I'm like, all right, Japan, Finland, Poland, cool. Courland. We've, uh, we've talked about there were there were uh, uh, cor- so socialist Soviet states that uh, yep. in the Soviet Union that are not recognized as countries yep. now and never and, were. And, they, and I must have missed that fun thing. Have I ever talked about this on the? I, I must have talked about this on the podcast. That the globe. My parents have. My parents have this globe yes. that my son adores, and it is from like the fifties or sixties. So it has all the so all the USSR in, in one block, and it's it's very fun. It's very. Do you funny tell your son you adore that globe too? I do. Oh no, yeah, I, I tell. I, well, it was, it, that was so funny. My dad, because my dad and the uh, them just got back from Jamaica for my uh, bougie bougie aunt's cousin's uh, uh, destination wedding. Yada yada, which was very fun to watch those pictures of of, of a lot of African American gentlemen in white shirts serving an all white crowd of rich white people. Ooh, mm, really, really, <laughs> really glad I was not at that particular event. Thank you. But my my dad and my small steps towards towards him acknowledging the radicalizing that I'm trying to do here did take the overhead shot of Cuba as they were flying over. So nice. to, to send to me to show me to show me the the fun. The, 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 the good lands and all of the fun things that they have. So nice. shout, shout out to that awful diversion. Moving on. Moving on. To Lenin, imperialism is the dominance of finance capital. Specifically, he does not define imperialism as generally defined, namely the building of empires by subjugation of territories and the exploitation of these colonial territories for new materials and as markets. Which brings us to another point I have to stop you at. 
because that was my biggest confusion when I started reading this book. Because, I'll again, I kind of still play the game a little bit of, I knew we were going to read Imperialism. Yeah. I still did not know what Imperialism was about. I had, no, I had no real good background. I didn't, like, listen to the Red Menace episode before. I didn't, like, get a background. I yeah. just started reading it. And so when all of a sudden we start talking about, like, I assumed this was talking about imperialism in the classical sense, and then we start talking about banks, and I got very confused. Yeah, uh, well, Atlanta does revolve around banks. They, they probably oversimplified the statement in the intro, uh, because and, and as you can see, I skimmed the intro because I just read that for the first time, because Lenin does uh, actually acknowledge that there's more forms of imperialism than just finance. Oh, I yeah. mean, you know, it's obviously it's geopolitical, you know, I mean, there's going to be geographical, uh, there's going to be political, there's going to be by force, you know, I mean, all kinds of different, you know, for resources, different things like that. So, um, but he, he's uncovering what the base is, uh, you know, we've, we've got to see the base to see the superstructure, see what makes it now, because obviously this is not classic colonialism. No, it's not. And I think that's, I think that's an interesting thing that Lenin noticed is that imperialism has other forms. This is evolved imperialism. This is mm -hmm. imperialism when you don't have to have your boots on the ground, but you are still absolutely, it, it, you know, mm -hmm. imperial. It's, it's the imperialism that is hyper relevant to our, our world today. Yeah, and obviously Lenin certainly doesn't think that there's not boots on the ground. He was witnessing World War One. Oh, no, no. He saw sure. people fighting over Africa. He saw people fighting over the Balkan states. But that's why it's so impressive to me that he was not... He Caught could have that. just focused on that. Yeah. He saw beyond that and to what the next step would be and what mm -hmm. the next eventual evolution of this would be kind of in the in the Marxist tradition. Yep. And so this continues. Indeed, as early as the World War One period, Lenin believed this form of imperialism was outmoded. Instead, he concerned himself with what he asserted was the inevitable next stage of imperialism, where the have nations could and would dominate the have not nations simply by the export of capital itself. And it's not in this work, but there's another work, Lenin work shortly after this uh or what was it was it the the reworking of the party platform after uh 1918 where lenin basically underscores that it's not just capital itself that's getting exported it's the the relationship the um the uh class relation yeah when that's you and, and i think that marx i think talks about that a lot in mm -hmm. in at the end of capital that you're you're the, the the his critique of Hegel was not that was was Hegel thought colonialism would solve capitalism and Marx says no it just replicates the class the, yeah, the, it the class dynamics on the colonial state that you go to it doesn't solve it mm -hmm. it just replicates it mm -hmm. uh, by this means the rich nations would not need to exploit the poor nations to secure raw materials for their own industries nor would they need to utilize the poor nations as captive markets they could merely collect the continuing income from their capital while all the actual work was performed in the have-not debtor nations. It is obvious that this would cause the wealthy nations themselves. The financiers would divert their capital to foreign locales. Gee, I wonder where we see that. Oh, where it would produce the highest returns and refrain from aiding industry in their own countries, resulting in industrial stagnation in the wealthy nations. Uh, guys? <laughs> yeah. Guys? Guys? Reread mm. that sentence. Reread that <laughs> sentence. 19 fucking 16... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Have you heard of the Rust Belt? Yeah. Uh, if well, if you want to know why why the United States is the country of the developed countries that doesn't have universal medical care, we're also the only one that has eight hundred bases around the world. We just get to scrap for resources. They don't have to hold you up. You know. Again, I mean, from a moral perspective, because the global South is full of our comrades, it's also 
from an expediency perspective, you know, some people from an expediency perspective will unfortunately become opportunist and and we'll we'll read a little bit about that in here and stand up uh, in a nationalist perspective for their comforts. But the fact of the matter is the things you want and that are a lot better than your comforts, like yeah. medical care, housing, having food, you know, not dying of stress younger and younger while cops are shooting people and people are dying from preventable disease and all these things. They're held back specifically because our rulers can turn around and just extract from the global south. Yep. And that's why it's fun. It's very funny the, the the cognitive dissonance you get with the the right in this country, where they they constantly rail against exporting jobs overseas mm-hmm. and constantly talk about how oh it's awful and we're we're you know immigrant labor is undercutting us and then we're sending our jobs out. So that's absolutely one hundred percent their business model. Yeah, it's I mean, the only way their business model continues to be profitable, it's, and it's just them stealing language. They they do the same thing with taxes. You know, everything you work for is taken away from you. That that's capitalism. You yeah. know, that's that's what exploitation is. They want to lay it on on a government itself, and then you know the government is against you. It doesn't care about you. Well, of course it doesn't. But they want to say it's the rich people that care about you. No, the rich people are the government. That's yeah. who it cares about. Yeah. So you know, I mean, they they love stealing language. Don't but this is don't just another. It's just that. so. Again, we read we read theory not because we want to read hundred year old books that were that were cool a hundred years ago. If this wasn't relevant today, if this had talked about some weird foreign dystopia that never existed, we wouldn't probably be reading imperialism right now. But dear God, it's talking exactly about what's happening a hundred years later. It's 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 that relevant. Mm-hmm. This, Lenin predicts, is the final stagnant parasitic revolutionary stage of capitalism. To emphasize his case, Lenin deliberately does not draw upon Marx or Marxist economists for substantiation, but instead he chooses to utilize non-Marxist sources for statistics and quotations. Don't worry, we're not going to read you every statistic line by line. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> we didn't do it in capital. It is do all it the worst parts of capital. It's back to haunt me. <laughs> There's a specter haunting this cave, and it's statistics and tables. <laughs> of particular interest as a contemporary American reader is Lenin's attention to the history of American industry and finance. His references to the business techniques of the robber barons of the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, has his analysis of the conflict between large and small capital, and his striking predictions concerning the development and role of the modern corporation. Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, appears here complete. I'm a little confused as to why they put robber barons in quotation marks there. Like that, yeah, yeah, that, no, those are a thing. That, I that's, what, that's what they were. I mean, are, yeah, we, are we debating maybe, that they weren't? No, maybe he's saying it's not a, a formal term. It okay. was slang or something. Okay, you know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, but, I don't but, know. I mean, if if someone wants to turn around and call cops pigs in this book, they don't have to put it in quotes. We uh, won't we won't call those dudes robber barons in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. Just don't, don't, you don't have to air quote things. All right. Um, so, ah, and, guy. And, and that is an important detail, too. We'll get into this book. We'll talk about, because people think of the old robber baron companies and their generic names, and they don't even relate. It. Like, people will buy things from General Electric. Yeah. And not even think, like, who is General Electric? Like, they didn't even break up and change, like, Standard no. Oil. No. Like, Standard Oil split into three, and they became Amco, which is... BP now, yep. uh, Exxon Mobil. They had actually split into four, and Exxon and Mobil came back together. Uh, and Chevron. Yeah. And so Chevron, Exxon Mobil, or or BP, you're 
you're buying from Standard Oil plus British Petroleum, which was one of the British robber barons. Exactly. Merged in there. Um, and General Electric was untouched. It's it's just like buying from Standard Oil, but electronics. And we'll touch on those companies. We'll Lenin will name. And them. that's where this is. That's where this book I think is really the it's, it was really cool for me because it is the first time that this theory it hits it hits home. It, it, it hits it's the, literal home. It, it's literal home turf <laughs> where it's it's things that I've heard, that I can relate to that I've always related to and things that I still see. And again, it's a good example of of where primitive accumulation I think is not a great way to describe that mm-hmm. because. All of this stuff is primitive. The the GE existing today is because of the primitive accumulation it it did during this time period. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely and it, and they keep doing it and keep doing it. Yeah, so yeah, and I mean, and you'll see again. You know, this is imperialism. You'll see examples that this book doesn't detail and touch on because you know maybe they came after it. We've talked about how Hawaii is a state yeah. because Dole wanted pineapples. They they really did. Want pineapples. They really wanted pineapples, and they were they happy to try to to control a kingdom themselves. And when they couldn't anymore, uh, the U.S. was happy to topple it and just call it the fiftieth state. You know, and of course, there's a huge concentration of the prison population in Hawaii that's still indigenous people. You can yeah. see closer in real time how the ethnic cleansing of the entire you know, United States has happened. It's not only still happening with oil pipelines and reservations and things like that, it's it's very active and visible in Hawaii. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, chapter one, concentration of production and monopolies. The enormous growth of industry and the remarkably rapid process of the concentration of production and ever larger enterprises represent one of the most characteristic features of capitalism. Um, and of course, you know we talked about this, this centralization. Is cap- this is yeah. right back. Yeah, this is this, this is, is right back to capital. There. So again, he's talking about Marxist theory, but he's not he's not referencing directly Marx here. Mm-hmm. And he's going to talk about uh, workers centralizing in, in enterprises, and he's going to say concentration of production, however, is much more intense than the concentration of workers. Since labor in the large enterprises, it's much more productive. And he's going to go into cooperation. And he's giving, he's not giving Marxist text, he's giving hardcore examples. So large scale enterprises were 30,000 out of a total of 3 million. So they were mm-hmm. 0.9%. Mm-hmm. They made up a very small percent of all the business. Of all the workforce, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet, they employed 5.7 million workers out of 14 million. Mm-hmm. They had almost half mm-hmm. of all the workers in less than a tenth of a percent of industry. Mm-hmm. And they used 75% of the total resources. The In this case, it was steam horse power. But just consider it resources. They were, they were sucking up 75% of the total resources of all business. Yeah, and, and this should be nothing new to you. I mean, it's like, what is it, 50 companies... Uh, cause you know forty percent of the greenhouse gas mm-hmm. emission. That's a hundred and ten companies cause over fifty percent. Um, it's it's extremely concentrated. Uses these resources, and of course that's a sign of their production too. Yeah, you know, I mean, some of it's a sign of their carelessness and greed, but it, it's of course a sign of their production. Yes, you know, I mean, if you're gonna to put through fifty percent of the resources, that's that's fifty percent of the constant capital. You're gonna be churning out commodities. Yeah. It's and the the line I think that came out of that was really important because it was it was that next paragraph less than mm-hmm. one hundredth of the total enterprises utilizes more than three fourths of the steam and electric power. Yeah, and that's what I highlighted. So I'll continue this one on too. Two million nine hundred and seventy thousand small enterprises employing up to five workers, representing ninety one percent of the total, utilize only seven percent of the steam and electric power. 
That's 91% using only 7% of the steam electric power. Tens of thousands of large-scale enterprises are everything. Millions of small ones are nothing. nothing. And that has o- those numbers have only gotten... It's not tens of thousands anymore, guys. No. Now it's like tens. <laughs> ten. Just yes. just tens. Yes. Like, now it's five corporations own all the media, and that's only five instead of four because Disney let Fox keep their news separate. Yeah. You yeah. Know, well, I, let's be real. No Disney's one wants, buying Hulu. No one wants way. to hang out with Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Like, the, the, nobody wants to. Yeah. B- Disney, Disney, because of the merger with Fox... And they all split up Hulu, so it owned Fox's 30% and Disney's 30% of Hulu, so it's already majority owner of Hulu, and I think it's just taking it over. I don't give a fuck right. about the economics of Hulu right now. Yeah, no, I'm just telling you. I know, like, I just, it's I can't. Just, it's just, it's, it's, it's like a, I can't, uh, an epidemic. It's like an epidemic if oh, you yeah. don't contain it. it just oh, no, it, and it's, it's happening, it's yeah. happening everywhere in every single industry all in this the time. country. All it's, the it's time. Just, it just, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So as we should, shall see, money and capital in the banks made this superiority of a handful of the largest enterprises still more overwhelming in the most literal sense of the word, since millions of small, medium, and even some big masters are in fact complete subjugation to some hundreds of millionaire financiers. Mm-hmm. In another advanced country of modern capitalism, the United States, he cited Germany before, the growth of the concentration of production is still greater. Um, here, statistics single out a single industry in the narrow sense of the word, and the group enterprises according to the value of their annual output. And this is talking about 1904. 1904. 1904. It has large-scale enterprises uh, numbered 1,900 out of 216,000, or 0.9%. They employed 1.4 million out of 5.5 million, or 25%. So not not as much of the workforce. No. Uh, and their combined annual output was 5.6 billion out of 14.8 billion, or 38 percent. Five years later, in 1909, this is extreme growth in five I mean, years. Five year, I mean, you want to talk about a five-year plan, guys? Here's a five-year plan. Yeah. Uh, now, now the big businesses were 1.1 percent of them. Uh, they're employing two million out of 6.6 million, so they're up to 30 percent, and they're producing nine million out of the 20 million dollar nine billion nine billion out of the 20.7 billion dollar output, or 43.8 percent. One percent are outputting 43.8 percent of the capital, and that was a jump, a jump of over five percent in five years. Half the production in the country was carried out. By a hundredth of its company. And that was in 1909. That was in 1909. <laughs> it has not gotten more diverse, guys. No, no, it has not. It has not. Almost half of the total production of all enterprises in the country was carried on by a hundredth part of those enterprises. Those 3,000 giant enterprises embraced 268 branches of industry. From this, it can be seen that at a certain stage of its development, concentration itself, as it were, leads right to monopoly. For a score or so of giant enterprises, and score that's like 40... Um, in this case, is is yay oldie language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could easily arrive at an agreement. While on the other hand, the difficulty of competition and the tendency towards monopoly arise from the very dimensions of the enterprises. This transformation of competition into monopoly is one of the most important, if not the most important, phenomenon of modern capitalist economy. And we must deal with it in greater detail. But first, we must clear up one possible misunderstanding. 
American statistics say 3,000 giant enterprises and 250 branches of industry, as if there were only a dozen large-scale enterprises for each branch. But that's not the case. Not in every branch of industry are there large-scale enterprises. And moreover, a very important feature of capitalism in its highest stage of development is the so-called combine. And this is something that's even more reflective of today than anything else in this book. This is to say a grouping in the single enterprise of different branches of industry, which either represent the consecutive stages in the working up of raw materials, for example, the smelting of iron ore into pig iron, the conversion of pig iron into steel, yada, 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 or are auxiliary to one another. For example, the utilization of waste or byproducts, the manufacture of packing materials. They, they came up, instead of calling them combines or, or syndicates now, they came up with this new fancy word, and it's called vertical integration. Yes. And that sounds fancy, but it, it's, it's really not. No, no. <laughs> Lenin called it 100 years ago. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it was. And that's, again, the, the point he made, and I want to go back to it, is really, really important. Because this, this is the single most... It, it, Capitalism preaches free market and how competi- and competition and the markets determine what's going to happen and it's 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 consumers that choose with their pocket. When forty groups and now that when ten companies mm-hmm. look at the self, let's and again we use this example a lot because we're familiar with it. Me and David both came from the the cell phone industry. Yeah, there are four cell phone companies. Oh yeah, there are four. Um, we could watch. Each of them magically just happen to agree on all the same pricing. And when one of them changes, all of them change in kind with it. It, It's not, there are, if you do not believe that there are handshake agreements among all of these companies mm-hmm. as to what we're going to set our price at and what we're going to do and what we're going to work with, you're out of your mind. Are there companies that come in and try and disrupt that quote unquote? Sure. When Amazon first showed up on the block and started trying to undercut Walmart, were they handshake agreeing with them? No. But then they got to a big enough level where they're, if you do not believe that they are uh, able to come to agreements that are mutually beneficial for them and not the consumer, I, I don't I don't know what to tell you. I don't know yeah, how to... And most especially not the worker. Oh, my God. No, let... The the worker is fucked regardless. That that is the the key thing. But even if, I, I'm trying to play. I'm I'm doing a little marks here. Yeah. I will play with you in your own ballpark. But do not tell me it is just free, willful, open competition that's doing this. They are allowed to to conspire to set prices at whatever they want, and they've been caught doing it over and over and over again. And nothing comes of it. No, and and vertical integration can take a lot of different directions these days, too. Uh, You just talked about Amazon. You know what Amazon owns? The Washington Post, okay? Mm. You want to tell me how Amazon needs the Washington Post to get shit from one factory to another? Yeah. It doesn't, okay? So this isn't that, you know, moving raw materials, you know, the... The iron to the pig iron to the steel, da 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 da. This is things mildly relating to each other, okay? With the Washington yes. Post, now, you know, Amazon can promote itself because that's something that's done a lot. Our news sources, they're owned by rich people, okay? Yep. And rich people have rich people's interest in mind. And so they kind of become this propaganda outlet and then they sell advertisements. Well, what are the newer ways to sell advertisements? Is sell an advertisement 
as a news article. You see it all the time in local news. Like people are like, look, breaking news. We have a lady who's in here and she's doing a great job of making revolutionary dog biscuits yep. out of eggs for dogs, small business. And all of a sudden they have like the sit down five minute commercial as if it's a news story and yep. stuff like that. Well, now the Washington Post can do that for Amazon in articles. And that's very important because right now other outlets, you know, there's always this level of too gross where even like super pro-capitalist liberal people go... Like that that was probably the biggest thing that photography out of Vietnam yep. got people against yep. the war effort because all of a sudden it went they were fine with just murdering people in Asia for thinking differently. That was fine. But as soon as you saw the pictures of the burning, you know, naked children running away from from essentially their parents' graves. It passed the too gross zone. Well, Amazon's getting past the too gross zone with the the workers openly talking about having to pee into bottles and things like that. There's articles going out about that. So now who owns a newspaper that can release great articles about how Amazon is revolutionizing the economy? The Washington Post. Yep. It's 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 not it, and again, Lenin Lenin scratch and we're just scratching the surface, but mm-hmm. Lenin uh, we're gonna keep we do this with every work we do. These are not these are not pieces of history in a glass. These these absolutely mm-hmm. parallel to what we're talking about, and that's why we're going to keep hammering them because that's why we read we read theory because it's it's right. If this wasn't accurate, if this was wildly useless, we wouldn't be talking about it. Mm-hmm. So Lenin goes on to quote a German bourgeoisie economist named Heyman, and uh, so Heyman's quote here is going to be combination or I'm sorry, no Hel- Hilferding. Who was Heyman? Heyman I, is the next. Heyman is the next. Uh, Heyman's one down. the next one. I'm getting them all the mixed up. Sorry. No, first right. it was Hilferding, then it was Heyman. All right. So first, Hilferding. Combination writes Hilferding levels out the fluctuations of trade and therefore assures the combined enterprises a more stable rate of profit. Secondly, combination has the effect of eliminating trading. Thirdly, it has the effect of rendering possible technical improvements and consequently the acquisition of super profits over and above those obtained by the pure non-combined enterprises. And we talk. That is absolute. That is a a a bourgeois economist, a classic economist. Absolutely acknowledging Marx's theory of of that that surplus that that yeah machines that, a race that, for surplus value that yeah. jump in, in in surplus value where you've got the the advantage for a limited amount of time yeah until everybody catches up and then you jump exactly. the next advantage until everybody catches up that's a bourgeois economist saying that exactly and he's saying when you own the whole industry now you know let's say your supply chain um, the the big revolution in technology happens before you in the supply chain well you're not seeing those boosted profits nope no it's the the people the step before you do but now if you uh, uh, have both steps, which everyone sees this revolution of automation, you're getting. You're yep. getting that profit. You're getting the win anywhere along the Everywhere. chain. Mm-hmm. Fourthly, it strengthens the position of the combined enterprises compared with that of pure enterprises. It increases their competitive power in periods of serious depression, and when the fall of prices of raw material does not keep pace with the fall of prices of manufactured articles. And that does not... See, this is talking about it, and you're, you're thinking of, oh, this is antiquated. They're talking about, you know wool and linen and the coats and we're back to the coats again and no look at what happens during depression look at the great recession how many companies came out of the great recession and worse off state none of them did none of them all of them get company uh, all of the most of the banks that a couple banks failed now none of them actually lost anything there a couple a couple big there were some golden parachutes most of them merged into but most of them got absorbed into other industries mm-hmm. and came out the other side kicking and everyone was fine everything happened because they have this they have so much they have their tendrils in so many other things that a depression 
can't hit them. They have at least one thing that'll keep them stable so that they can come screaming out the other side. And the only people that suffer a setback are the working class. Yep. And I want you all to keep a little mental bookmark of the 2008 Great Great Recession and uh, the uh, um, bank bailouts. Uh, because there's a reason they're too big to fail, and this book is going to make that clearer and clearer. So just kind of roll that in the back of your head as you listen to this and yep. read along. Yep. Um, so then Heyman, the German bourgeoisie economist, who's written a book specially on mixed, that is, combined enterprises in the German iron industry, says non-combined enterprises perish, are crushed by the high price of raw material and the low price of finished product, and thus we get the following picture. There remain on hand the great coal companies producing millions of tons yearly, strongly organized in their syndicate, and closely connected with the big steel plants in their, in their syndicate. These great enterprises produce 400,000 tons of steel per annum with correspondingly extensive coal, ore, and blast furnace operations as well as the manufacturing of goods employing 10,000 workers courted in company houses, sometimes owning their own wharves and railways, and are today a standard type of German iron and steel plant. And concentration continues. Individual enterprises are becoming larger and larger. An ever-increasing number of enterprises in one given industry or in several different industries join together into giant combines. Backed up and controlled by half the dozen Berlin banks and the German mining industry, the truth of teachings of Karl Marx and the concentration of capital is definitely proved. At any rate, in a country where it's produced by tariffs and freights, the German mining industry is ripe for expropriation. That is a bourgeoisie economist going, oh, uh, yeah, at least here in Germany, that thing that Marx said is coming true. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, you're going to see stuff like in, in TikTok by Bloomberg and The Economist yeah. trying to spin things the capitalist way. Like, oh, yeah, they, they got that part right. Even we'll admit that. Yeah. Now, listen to us about the other bullshit so that you can suckle up to the ruling class. Yeah. Uh, they have to do that because it's so obviously right what we say. And, and they're trying to, to stave you off and catch you in a net and pull you back. And we saw, and again, this is, Mar- Germany just went full on. Like, they didn't, they took the rails off and went all in on it. Mm-hmm. We talk about this all the time. All of the regulation and nonsense and and little limits and little 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 roadblocks we put in the way of capital just delay the inevitable. The mm-hmm. the, the New Deal just gave a lifeline to capitalism to keep going for a little bit longer before it inevitably crushed itself again. Yeah. It yeah. never, ever, ever, ever is gonna not be true. It's just going to go faster or slower depending on the conditions you put it in. Yes. Now, Lenin then is going to compare, and we're not going to get – again, we're, we're going to get in too many nitty-gritty examples like this. But Lenin's going to compare a British industry because basically that bourgeoisie economist said, well, it's the tariffs that do it because yeah. all these economists have their – and Lenin says, no, free trade happened in England and the same thing happened. That's nonsense. Um, so then we're going to move on and say 50 years ago when Marx was writing Capital, free competition appeared to most economists to be natural law. The official scientists tried by a conspiracy of silence to kill the works of Marx, which by theoretical and historical analysis of capitalism showed that free competition gives rise to the concentration of production, which in turn at a certain stage of development leads to monopoly. Today, monopoly has become a fact. And again, this is 100 years ago. Uh-huh. It's very much become a fact uh-huh. now. Uh, the economists are writing mountains of books in which they describe the diverse manifestations of monopoly and continue to declare in chorus that Marxism is refuted. But facts are stubborn things, as the English proverb says, and they have to be reckoned with whether we like it or not. The facts that sh- – and I've, I've never heard of that proverb in my spoken oh, seriously? My life. Oh, yeah, facts no. Facts are fa- stubborn things. Oh, yeah. Facts are stubborn things. Oh, yeah. Is no, that no, a very no. British it's, thing? I don't it, know. it is. And it gets used – most of the time it gets used by uh, – uh, I think Reagan uses it a lot. Uh, oh, Reagan, God. I think in like the 64 
convention speech, uh, Reagan used it uh, extensively. The right loves to to throw it at the left. Nice. So yeah. it's fun when we can throw it back. This is so. This was the root of the facts, not feelings thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even the facts don't count. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the facts show that differences between capitalist countries and the matter of protection of free trade only give rise to insignificant variations in the form of monopoly or in the moment of their appearance. And that rise of monopolies as a result of concentration of production is the general and fundamental law of the present stage of development of capitalism. Uh, we're going to go on through yep. some more uh, examples in Europe. Um, the Great Revolu- Revolu- Revolutionization commenced with the crash of 1873, or rather the Depression which followed it, and which hardly discernible interruptions in the early 80s, 1880s, an unusually violent but short-lived boom in about 1889, marks 22 years of European economic history. During the short boom of 1889 to 1890, the system of cartels was widely resorted to in order to take advantage of the favorable business conditions. An ill-considered policy drove prices higher than would have been the case otherwise, and nearly all these cartels perished ingloriously in the smash. Another five-year period of bad trade and low prices followed, but a new spirit it reigned in industry. The depression was no longer regarded as something to be taken for granted. It was regarded as nothing more than a pause before the boom. And we, you, you hear that all the time. I mean, every capitalist economist acknowledges the boom-bust system. Mm-hmm. They, it, it is baked into the cloth, and they just acknowledge the it. The right-wingers will get all in their armchairs and start. And, you know, every time there's a depression, they're like, well, it's not really about... This tax cut, that tax cut thing, this whole thing works in cycles. You got to wait for a good boom cycle. And it's like, yeah. you know, every time one of these cycles happens, the rich get richer, we don't get any richer, and people die. And it regress, and all it does is it st- it, it, it resets the markers. Again, mm-hmm. we see this, we see this focus on GDP. And yeah, there was, there was a stop in, in 2008, everybody went down for a while. Workers went down, business went down. They went. They were making less profit than they normally would. <laughs> then business took off like a fucking rocket, but the workers never caught back up. We're still at the same. They reset what the boundaries could be, and conditioned us to be grateful to have jobs again, so we wouldn't ask for anything more. We wouldn't demand to 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 be on the same level as them because we were so broken by that depression that just being able to get back to stability was enough for us mm-hmm. and that happens every single cycle mm-hmm. every single cycle so now lenin is going to break down the stages in the history of monopolies in the late 19th century in europe and he's going to say the history of monopolies are the following one in 1860 to 70 the highest stage the apex of development of free competition monopoly is barely discernible in its embryonic stage after the crisis of 1873 a wide zone of development of cartels but they are still the exception they are not yet durable and they are still in a transitory phenomenon three the boom at the end of the 19th century in the crisis of 1900 and 1903. Cartels become one of the foundations of a whole of economic life. Capitalism has been transformed into imperialism. Cartels come to an agreement on the conditions of sale, terms of payment. They divide the markets among themselves. They fix the quantity of goods to be produced. They fix prices. They divide the profits among the various enterprises. Uh, again, he's going to get into the numbers of trusts in America and Germany yeah. and, and things like that. We'll... And this is, and again, it, it, 
Re- realistically, he is he's doing a lot of what you can tell he liked Marx. He's doing a lot of what Marx did in Capital, which is repeat ad nauseum the numbers over and over to show just how true they were. Um, yes. This is, uh, we get to invoke some more uh, uh, tools that we use during Capital. Mm-hmm. If you don't trust us or don't trust Lenin, you're forced to go read all these numbers. Yeah, I mean, if you don't want to trust us, obviously, uh, you know, Lenin talks about the famous Standard Oil Company in the United States was founded in 1900, and then he gives all the Standard Oil numbers. We already talked about that. Uh, he talks about U.S. Steel Corporation. Uh, that's another one of the major robber barons. So again, and, and this is, I think, important, and this will be, I, I wasn't prepared for this, so as we keep going, but, you know, U.S. Steel was, which was that was Carnegie, right? Yeah, yeah. Andrew, U.S. Steel, US Steel was Carnegie. Um, Standard Oil was who? Who did Standard Oil? Um, I can. That's and uh, so uh, we're getting. I mean, obviously we got to get it. Uh, Rockefeller. Rockefeller. James, J- uh, yeah, John. This John is and this is the important thing here is because all of these companies we're about to name, yeah, they're they're all the like cornerstone fucking billionaires of their day. They're mm-hmm. their Bezoses, and it's it's so again Standard Oil, Rockefeller, U.S. Steel, Carnegie. Uh, we're, we're going to, and we're going to get to more as we go through. I think Vanderbilt's going to come up here sooner rather than later, yeah. uh, with the railroads and all of that. And, and U.S. Steel is kind of a, a combination historically, uh, between what you've seen from, um, General Electric or they're still all together yeah. and what you've seen from Standard Oil where they've been broken to pieces. They were broken apart a little bit after making it really big and a lot of the, like the railroad, the very, very racist railroad expansion out West, yeah. Uh, but uh, they're not so huge now. They're still an enormous corporation, and they're still outright named U.S. Steel. They've yeah. just been plucked off of a few But you times. also have to focus on, and again, we're not, we, we could do it if we want to, but we're not doing it for this one. Focus on where all that capital went, though, because mm-hmm. U.S. Steel, none of the people that were benefiting from that cap, they went off and started other industries or branched into other industries mm-hmm. that are more yes u.s steel isn't as important now but you guarantee that the, the the descendants of the rockefellers and the carnegies all have their hands in other industries or are just sitting on a mountain of honor of just unjustly accumulated wealth that they will never have to do anything for the rest of their lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um let's see let's we're still on. And all of this, again, and the, think of the conditions that these people were extracting that labor out of while well, well, we get caught back up. I mean, U.S. Steel and, and Standard Oil, the worker conditions for these companies, this is some of the hardest labor you can imagine. This is some of the most dangerous, the most, the most just crushing kind of labor, and these people became ultra, ultra, ultra billionaires on the backs of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it, it's just insidious. Yeah, um, it's it's really really bad. Uh, Lenin's going to start getting a little bit into some of the German alliances, and I did want to touch on that because yeah. people do have to be aware of the dual alliance, uh, which came from the the big factories, the uh, Meister factory and the uh, Castle factory, uh, and then they combined with a company you'll be very familiar with today. Um, a company that was a big, big driver in World War One, and uh, is now gobbling up uh, Agent Orange producing companies from here in Missouri, uh, Bayer. 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 
Bayer, after World War One, uh, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, um, if you want, again, uh, they get referenced a lot. They're getting referenced again. Mm-hmm. Uh, go the Dollop series. They're two-parter on opium. Mm. Have you have you have you heard it? I've not heard that. You need to, um, because holy fuck, do they take? There are two main players in the opi- in, in in historically the opium crisis as we know it today and as we knew it back then. Bayer invented heroin. Yeah. Quite literally, they trademarked it. Yeah. They I'm aware of that detail. I don't know all the details of the story. Exactly, but, yeah. and they're they're worse. Bayer and Purdue Pharma are hand in mm-hmm. hand. They they are they are the joint of that. Part of when part of what Bayer's punishment was post World War One is I they had to give up the the rights to heroin, but they still they're still did that stop them? No. Again, Bayer is now they they still they still lead and painkillers. They just moved over to aspirin. Yes, exactly. They just jumped to aspirin and they started and and but then they came right back around when the opioid when you could find a new way to market opioids. They were right there coming up with new ways to do it. It's Bayer is a people just assume oh they, they make the aspirin they have the thing with the heart Bayer is a is right up there with with Mercedes and all these other just fucking evil Nazi companies that we just kind of don't bother with anymore. We just yeah. let them keep doing their thing. And again, yeah, they bought Monsanto. Monsanto, mm-hmm. I just got back from the... the, the yeah, s- Monsanto who dropped Agent Orange all over uh-huh. Vietnam. Monsanto who is right now swirled up in a controversy because all of the pesticides on plants, when you hear organic or pesticide-free uh, in ways that, that normal people can't afford, uh, but that big, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're so organic. Uh, why is that? Because they covered the shit in Roundup. And, of course... The poison you were told to spray along your lawn to ensure monoculture that we're covering all our food crops in is a carcinogen, shockingly enough. Uh, and, and and if you want some, some true just mm, mm, uh, chef kiss irony, um, the insectarium at the St. Louis Zoo is, is named after Monsanto. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. It's 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 just it's literally just like they're just laughing at it. There's <laughs> guys. Would it be hilarious if the big pesticide makers said, "Let's do let's do that. That'd be funny." Like yeah. it, it, it's just spitting in people's faces. It's this. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. One of these days, Trump's gonna find an existing homeless shelter. Make sure it's one of the ones that that keeps LGBT people out, and just buy it so it'll be like Trump's homeless shelter, <sighs> Trump's house for the God, poor. Jesus. That's that's just how this shit goes. It's so. It's, it's how so, it goes. It's so bad. But yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Go listen to the two-part dial-up on opium because it is one. It does a great job of explaining where we're at the opium crisis historically and how it got there. Um, and two, it's a great it's a great way to just make you want to murder everyone at Bayer and Purdue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if if there's one thing I I am here for, it's murdering everyone at Bayer and Purdue. <laughs> uh, but I I did again. You know, I mean, we'll touch back on Bayer, I believe, later in the book. But I I didn't want to blow past that just because it was mixed in the numbers. Especially we're going to touch on like, hey, U.S. Steel's right here. Remember them. Uh, because Bayer did, of course, play a big role in the world wars, and uh, we're talking about imperialism here. Bayer, didn't Bayer make uh, Zyklon B? Wasn't that them? That sounds right. I'm pretty I sure. I, I Ed, Well, no, we don't have to Google it. We have people that will correct us. If it's not them, call me later. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> Bayer, Bayer was uh, was behind Zyklon B. Um, and, and it's it, both an X or a Z. Oh, come on. Now I don't even know. It's a Z, Y, Z, K... I don't, I don't, I don't Google these things. I don't, I don't come up with facts. I just shove them in my brain and spit them out at random oh, times. CYK, yes, it, it, it was. Ah, yes, ah, nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the fun, friendly aspirin company. 
they invented heroin, and they helped you murder a bunch of Jews effectively. Yes. Why? Why do we continue to allow them to exist? Mm, I, I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, so Len is going to continue. Competition becomes transformed into monopoly. The result is immense progress in the socialization of production. In particular, the process of technical invention and improvement becomes socialized. So again, now you're not socializing the, the profits, the things you get back yeah. from production, but you are socializing producing it, including the innovations. And so all of these innovations catch up much quicker now. Everything, mm. everything go. You don't need one. One guy tinkering in the garage to come up with an invention. You've got this massive workforce in all of these different industries, and you can incentivize them to come up with great new ideas that are protected by intellectual property rules and all of this other stuff that says you can't profit from it if you're there. And yeah, and some little company comes up with some new idea. Guess what? You've got all of your innovators going how to mimic it just outside of a copyright. F stop that. them out and then buy their copyright. Uh, just buy them outright. Just, oh, they're doing a thing I like. All right, buy them. Buy them up. Buy them up. Amazon, are you kidding? Amazon and Google are like the kings of this right now. Oh, Google is making how much money off Android? Uh -huh. The people at Google didn't invent Android. That's why no. it's called Android, not like Google phone or Alphabet yeah. phone. Yeah. It, you know, it, they bought up a company time, called Android. Every time a company comes up with some, every time someone comes up with some innovation or something that's going to destroy, they just get sucked in. That's Uber is just desperately, it, it, Uber's entire business model is become big enough that someone will buy us out. And it's like a long game of chicken where it's like, all right, we're going to be massively unprofitable. The most unprofitable company in the history of humankind. And that is factual. That is not an exaggeration. They are the most unprofitable. It's, it's not the Amazon quote unquote never profitable because no. they're always buying business no, stuff. They're is, actually losing. They are losing. It is the most unprofitable company in human history. Mm -hmm. Its entire existence is predicated on getting someone to buy out their idea for an obscene amount of money so they can walk away. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, in order to take that risk, you have to be absurdly rich in the first place. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Travis, yeah, Travis Kalanick is not, is not some, uh, it was not in his garage tinkering. It, that's yeah. not how this works. And so you have an absurdly rich person coming up with a scheme so that the comp big companies that swallow people out can make him rich by swallowing up his union busting gimmick. That's, it's just fucking absurd. Also, the, uh, the owner of, uh, the, the creator of Uber. Other than being a wild sex pest and uh, and and just generally awful human being, named his uh, his house the Jam Pad. Oh, fuck. and uh, if that doesn't make you want to <laughs> murder people, uh, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. <laughs> uh, just it's a thing. All right, so back to Lennon. This no longer the old type of free competition between manufacturers scattered and out of touch with one another and producing for an unknown market. Concentration has reached the point at which it's possible to make an approximate estimate of all sources of raw material. For example, the iron ore deposits of a country and even, as we shall see, of several countries or of the whole world. Not only are such estimates made, but these sources are captured by gigantic monopolistic alliances. The OPEC! Yeah. Mm. Uh, an approximate estimate of the capacity of markets is also made, and the trusts divide them up themselves by agreement. Skilled labor power is monopolized. The best engineers are engaged. The means of transportation are camp captured. Railways in America, shipping companies, Europe and America. Capitalism in its 
imperialist stage arrives at the threshold of the most complete socialization of production. In spite of themselves, the capitalists are dragged, as it were, into the new social order, which marks the transition from complete free competition to complete socialization. Production becomes social, but appropriation remains private. The social means of production remain the private property of a few. The framework of formally recognized free competition remains, but the yoke of a few monopolists on the rest of a population becomes a hundred times heavier, heavier, more, more burdensome, burdensome and, and intolerable. intolerable. Sorry, I over. No, my no, it is. But that's that phrase right there. Is it? It is. The more, the more that they're allowed to combine and become impervious to mm-hmm. any sort of any sort of fluctuation, any sort of competition, any sort of threat, the more completely controlled we are by those companies, the more completely beholden we are to them and and their ability to control our labor and our our ability to survive. Yeah. So again, Lenin's going to turn on to another German economist, Kessner, uh, and his compulsory submission of monopolist combines. And he's talking about cartels versus everybody else. He says, the book is edifying if only for the list it gives of modern civilized methods that monopolist combines resort to in their striving towards organization, in air quotes. There is follows. Stopping supplies of raw materials, one of the most important methods of compelling adherence to a cartel. And and we're, we need to we need to highlight this again. If you own all of the raw materials for a thing, front to back, De Beers. Yeah. Diamond. You can literally just control. You can say, I'm only going to sell them to you. And only if you agree to play by my rules. Not free competition. Yeah. And that'll be important later with banks, of course, too. Uh, but but I don't want to water down De Beers when we've touched on before. You know, mm-hmm. Johannesburg, Tel Aviv, those are uh, the diamond capitals of the world. Where have you seen apartheid? Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. Uh, stopping the supply of labor by means of alliances of agreements between employers and the trade unions by which the latter permit their numbers to work only in trustified companies. And again, you know, that's talking about your your negotiation as a group mm-hmm. is and, and labor unions is your biggest tool. Yes. And what these companies are doing is they're subjecting you to agreeing to their cartel. And so what actually happens is in order to support a labor, in order to support your your workers, you support the ones that are in a good contract not being struck against yep. uh, by the labor union. So you can support union labor. So now all of a sudden, like a grocery store like Schnucks is a big conglomerate grocery store that knocks out little grocery stores because they have union agreements. And if you don't shop there, you know, you're not supporting union labor. You're going to put people out of union jobs. If you are shopping there, you're allowing this this government cartel to, to knock off all the other competition. And, th- and this is something that I, I, I wanted to discuss because I can't tell. This seems to that that IE of agreements between employers and the trade unions by which the latter permit their members only to work in trust fight enterprises. That seems to intimate a, a, a form of corruption within trade union that they're doing something wrong yeah. there. Is that is Lennon, that, a crit- is that Lennon Lennon will touch on, Yeah, I mean, Lenin's touched on before. As long as you have enterprises, even the most socialist uh, organizations will become bureaucratized and corrupt. I think we talked about it in State and Rev. If we, not, uh, yeah, he'll no. talk about it here. So labor unions will, will have bureaucracies. Um, that's why, you know, I mean, it's I support any strike, but it's 10 times more important to support a wildcat strike yeah. than, you know, a union condone one, because that tells you that the, they're fighting against the labor union bureaucracy and the capitalist rulers. You yep. know, I mean, that's it's something that you, they that, do deal with. That being said, if we hadn't mentioned it already, solidarity with the start of the shop strike. Great yes. work. That was a huge, huge yes. win for big, labor. Big, big win. And no one reported on it at all. 
It was very funny. If you compare that to, like, the West Virginia teacher strike, like, which became this, yeah, rise up against the state. Go, teachers. Yeah. yeah. It felt like a women's march kind of level of, of liberals getting on board with it. And then compare that to the stop and shop strike, and it just crickets. And I, I think some of that is because, you know, I mean, teachers unions are much, much bigger and much more affecting to people. But some of that is because, again, you know, I mean, you can position it as fighting against the state, especially if if there's Republican leaders. So then the liberals can get on with their partisanship. And if there's liberal leaders, the Republicans can say, oh, the state's bad and like pretend like they actually care about unions when they hate unions. So there's always some partisan rule Fight. when it's a stop and shop. We, it, Where's the biz- enemy of anyone in the ruling it's class? A biz- exactly. Oh, it's a small business. It, it, again, it aligns with their interests. That threatens them. A yeah. teacher, the teachers threatening going against the state does not threaten, especially in West Virginia. Not, Bill Gates is not setting up charter schools in West Virginia. That's no, there's no threat to the ruling class there. The stop and shop strike was absolutely a threat to it because it was an attempt to undercut union labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So solidarity. Uh, Three, cutting off deliveries. Four, closing of trade outlets. Five, agreements with buyers by which the latter undertake to trade only with the cartels. Six, the systematic lowering of prices to ruin outside firms, those who refuse to submit to the trust. Millions are spent in order to sell goods for a certain time below their cost price. The price of benzene was lowered from 40 to 22 marks, reduced almost by half. Again, Uber. That number yeah, six is, is, is ex- Uber. explicitly Uber. <laughs> yeah. Sell below what the actual market could support in order to drive to try and break taxi unions. Yeah, choke choke out competition. That's their I mean, enti- that's, entire game plan. It's it's the Walmart model. It's the oh my god, it's the, it's the Walmart model to a T. Yeah. Uh, stopping credits and boycott. Mm-hmm. This is no longer competition between small and large-scale industry or between technically developed and backward enterprises. We see here the monopolies throttling those who do not submit to them, to their yoke, to their dictation. The following is the way in which the process was checked by the mind of the bourgeoisie economist. Even in a purely economic sphere, writes Kessner, a certain change is taking place from commercial activity in the old sense to the word organizational speculative activity. The greatest success no longer goes to the merchant whose technical and commercial experience enables him to best of all estimate the needs of the buyer and, so to say, discover latent demand. It goes to the speculative genius who knows how to estimate in advance or even only to sense the organizational development and the possibilities of connections between the individual enterprises and the banks. Speculating in finance... Nothing mm. could go wrong here. No. There is nothing. no way this gets out. No I, way. I, I love this next part by Lennon. Translating into ordinary human language. <laughs> <laughs> this Fuck means that the development of capitalism has arrived at a stage when although commodity production still reigns and continues to be regarded as the basis of economic life, it has in reality been undermined and the big profits go to the genius of financial manipulation. And we're you can it's eliminate the, the first half. That win. You can fully eliminate the first half of that sentence now. Yeah. Because commodity production does not reign anymore. It is at, we are absolutely no full we're a on. service market. Yeah. We are full on in that second half where it is pure financial manipulation. And, and it's 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 all about the bullies and the bullies and the bullies and the bullies. It's it's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So we talk a little more about uh, Kessner, and uh, let's see. Do we want to talk about Kautsky? Uh, why? Why? All right. Why? Why must we talk about Kautsky? We have, we, I've, I have, spoke, we have to talk about. Kautsky. We don't have to talk about Kautsky. 
<laughs> we've talked enough about Kowski. Okay, okay, okay. We'll we'll skip Kowski. We will skip Kowski. We'll skip Kowski. There's a lot of Kowski. Oh, I'm sure. We know the opinions on Kowski. All right. Uh, so then we're going to skip down to another German, Jidels, the author of one of the best works on the relationship of German big banks to industry. And so Lenin is starting to talk about how banks relate to industry. And this is very, very important to this work and a worldview at large. Uh, Jidel says, the more developed an economic system is, writes Leafman. Why does he say Jidel's and Leafman? I always forget that. See, this is what happens when I take notes and look <laughs> back at it like five days later. One of the most unblushing apologists of capitalism, the more it resorts to the risky enterprises or enterprises abroad, to those which need a great deal of time to develop, or finally, those of which are local importance. The increased risk, now this is Lenin's words, is connected in the long run with the prodigious increase of capital, which overflows at the brim, as it were, and flows abroad. At the same time, the extremely rapid rate of technical progress gives rise more and more to disturbances in the coordination between the various spheres of industry to anarchy and crisis. Okay, we need to we need to slow down and re reread a sentence because, dear Christ, holy cow, the more developed an economic system is the more it resorts to risky enterprises. And let's stop right there. 2008. Yeah. Fully developed. What What did we get into? Fucking subprime. Like, that is... It is and we're heading credit, right back into it. Credit default swaps. They, when you hit a certain point, when you've extracted all there is, you have to get to this level of pure... Enron. Enron. Just, just making up numbers as Tyco. they go. I, it's it's absolute. It, it always gets this when you get to a certain stage. It always reverts back to this insanity. And again, and then you get to uh, uh, enterprises abroad, fine, and foreign investment. Those which need a great time to develop. Again, you can you if you're if you're one of the big banks, you can sit on an inv- you can you can sit on an investment that nobody else would be able to take a risk on because you know you could back it up and you then you can reap profits that no one else could have access to. Yeah, you'd write it off in your taxes and or you'll you'll and, profit windfall big. And you and, saw this big during uh, railroads. No railroads were not something that someone could just, there was no immediate return on starting to build railroad line. It had to be someone that had an obscene amount of capital and didn't mind pissing it away for years at a time because they knew once they got it, they had it. They had it forever. Mm -hmm. Uber. It's Uber. God damn it. And so that's where, you know, let it again says the increased risk is connected in the long run with a prodigious increase of capital, which overflows to the brim and, as it were, flows abroad, spills out everywhere. It can't even control itself. Uh Uh-huh. At the same time, this extremely rapid rate of technological process gives rise more and more to the disturbances in the coordination between the various spheres of industry to anarchy and crisis. So now there's not just these cartels cooperating with each other. Now there's prospecting out there. Mm-hmm. And prospecting is going to get greedy. Yep. And it's going to start breaking through the, the coordinated walls. Yep. You're going to, because you're going to know at some point, I, no one is going to be satisfied. We, we have this cartel. We all agree we're going to make our obscene amount of profit and we're all going to sit. No. Someone somewhere is going to be like, I got to get an edge. Yep. I oh. got to get something else. And here's where I had Jidel. See, this is what happens when I mix up my ah. A crisis of every kind, economic crisis more frequently, but not only these. And mind you, they called them crises back then. They're recessions and depressions. Yeah. Uh, in their turn, increase very considerably the tendency towards concentration and monopoly. Again, 
the banks got richer after 2008. Yeah. Lenin was saying this shit 100 years before that. Yeah. In this connection, the following reflections of Jidel's on the crisis of 1900, which was, as we've already seen, the turning point in the history of modern monopoly, are exceedingly instructive. Jidel says, side by side with the giant plants in the basic industries, the crisis of 1900 found many plants organized on lines that today would be considered obsolete. The pure non-combined plants, which had also risen on the crest of the industrial boom. The fall in prices and the falling off in demand put these pure enterprises in a precarious situation, but did not affect some of the big combined enterprises at all and affected others only for a very short time. As a consequence of this crisis of 1900 resulted in a far greater concentration of industry than the former crisis like that of 1873. The later crisis also produced a sort of selection of the best equipped enterprises, but owing to the level of technological development at that time, this selection could not place the firms which successfully emerged from the crisis in a position of monopoly. Such a durable monopoly exists to a higher degree in the gigantic enterprises, in the presence of iron and steel and electric industries, and to a lesser degree in the engineering industry and certain metal transport other enterprises, with their consequence of their complicated technique and their extensive organization. And the magnitude of their capital. And the magnitude of their capital. Uh, and so Lenin goes on, Monopoly! <laughs> Big it's a fun game for all! Let is really happy. He just he, he did not pass go. Or no, I guess you want to pass go. Shut up. He went to God jail. Damn it, David. <laughs> Monopoly. This was the last word in the latest phase of capitalist development. But we shall only have a very insufficient, incomplete, and poor notion of the real cap power and significance of modern monopolies if we do not take into consideration the part played by the banks. Yeah, and that's where it gets interesting because when we talk about when you talk about antitrust in this company, when you talk when you think of busting up the the the, the, the trusts and the busting up the monopolies and Teddy Roosevelt coming in there and whacking them apart and all of this fun stuff, you think of US Steel or you think of you think of the breaking up of the telecom Standard companies, oil Standard telecom. Oil. You don't think about banks. No one ever talked. And it's starting to happen now. It is absolutely happening now. Like Elizabeth Warren for all of her whatever. Uh, this, oh, this, yeah. She's a piece of crap. But at she least she's a piece of banks. human. She is, she is she's, not good. She's a Republican that turned to a quote unquote Democrat the second the word super predators came it's, out. It's, it's, it's a nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. It's, but it, it, she has brought to the discourse a legitimate call to break up banks. Yes. To, to, to treat banks like what they are, which is. Monopolies. Monopolies. Yeah. I mean, pure and simple. Yeah, but you think anyone's ever going to take down banks without a total revolution? Oh, you're yeah. going to need revolution. No, for it's that. it's going to be a little bit difficult. It's yeah. going to be a little bit difficult. Yeah. We we literally labeled them too big to fail. <laughs> They've literally <laughs> been called too important to ever suffer consequence. Yes. But in spite of our our talking after uh, Lenin's wonderful transition, that is all we have for Capital 1. Art Chapter 1. Capital 1. Chapter, chapter 1. See the banks are fucking up my brain. <laughs> That is and all that, we have for chapter that one. That is all chapter one. Uh, thank you, thank you for uh, as always for sort of sticking with us through this nonsense. Uh, you, if you want, if you want to see us and and follow my misguided attempts to to solve world ills on the internet, uh, we're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter.